You're listening to a podcast from York City Church. If you like what you hear and you'd like to find out more, please visit our website at www.yorkcitychurch.org.uk. Much of the clash get uh, that much airtime in churches. Maybe they should get a bit more. <laughs> if you love me back. <clears throat> uh, my name is John Healy, and uh, I hope you'll stay with me this morning as we work through uh, the scriptures. We've been uh, going through loosely the uh, uh, lectionary uh, over the past year, uh, sticking relatively closely to that with some uh, exceptions. And today, Uh, There are quite a number of passages. My son had encouraged us maybe to stay stay till 12 o'clock. So we won't be going through all six. We should get through two of today's passages, perhaps. And uh, we're going to be starting with a a relatively well-known passage uh, from Paul's, uh, the Apostle Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Uh, So the words should come up on the screen, and uh, Rachel's going to help us out by reading for us this morning. Thanks, Rachel. Finally. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For our struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God so that you may be able to withstand on that evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand therefore, and fasten the belt of truth around your waist, and put on the breastplate of righteousness. As shoes for your feet, put on whatever will make you ready to proclaim the gospel of peace. With all of these, take the shield of faith, with which you will be able to quench all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Pray in the Spirit at all times, in every prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert and always persevere in supplication for all the saints. Pray also for me, so that when I speak, a message may be given to, make, to me to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am the ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it boldly as I must speak. Thanks, Rachel. It's a wonderful passage. It's beautiful imagery. It's clear. It's a, it's a ready-made sermon, nice six-point sermon, seven-point sermon, six-point series, if you're prepared to take it that far, uh, which many people have done. And, and I think that this might have been a favorite preaching illustration of Paul's. There's a very similar passage in his letter to the Colossians, and it clearly draws from, from the Old Testament, particularly Isaiah, but also some bits from, from the Psalms, which Paul would have been very, very familiar with. You can almost imagine his listeners kind of half rolling their eyes, half salivating with anticipation. Oh, here comes the armor again. I think some of you might even be feeling that way today. I've certainly heard many, many sermons on this 
passage over the years. And almost without exception, every single one of those sermons and teachings has been on the individual elements of the armor and how they apply to individual Christian living. Almost without exception, the individual Christian experience. Of course, I don't think it's wrong to consider the implications of that. But I think to be entirely faithful to this passage in context, we need to consider that this is a letter that is written to a church, to a body of believers. And so in attempting to handle this faithfully, I'm hoping today to draw your attention to this passage as one written to the church. You know, our society is hugely individualistic, and in many ways in our culture we like to place the individual ahead of the community. And we digest everything that we take in through that lens of the individual. And so it's easy to let what's a cultural norm override our interpretation of Scripture and miss the full richness of God's grace to us in His Word. And so I think it would be wrong to ignore the corporate implications of the armor of God. I'm really sorry to labor the point, but just before we get stuck into this, we're addressing the body of Christ. And I need to reiterate that today, partly to realign your interpretive lens for a better focus, but also because it's really hard to faithfully unpack the scripture in our context without bumping into the odd sacred cow along the way. Sacred cows that could make it feel like, for some of you, I'm perhaps criticizing your individual career choices or even the employer that you've chosen to work for. Now hopefully if I can get my message across well today, you will see that that is not the case at all. I'm not recommending that you change your career today. In fact, if anything, you'll see that I'll be advocating for quite the opposite. That being said, if you do go away feeling slightly oversensitive today, I'd really encourage you to consider whether your primary sense of belonging comes from your place of work or does it come from the most beautiful and holy expression of God's transformative power in the world, the church. So, that being said, introduction's over. This passage feels like all go, go, go when you read it. <clears throat> it's got that kind of ready man action feel to it. It's often been used as a motivator to get Christians into action. Take on the enemy. Get on that armor, soldier. Get out there and fight, soldier. However, contrary to how it has often been presented and used, this isn't one of those Braveheart-style speeches urging us to go out there and give it our all and defeat the enemy in one massive heartfelt push. It's not like a do or die, a go big or go home, or just do it type of passage. It's not actually designed to kind of energize the faithful into action. A reminder that you don't have to be doing something all the time in order to be an effective Christian. See, our culture teaches us that in order to be effective, we should work hard. We should study hard. We should apply ourselves. We should use every little trick that we can find to our advantage. And when we do that, we will get the experience we need and ultimately we will succeed and we will win. 
And naturally, we bring that way of thinking into the church. See, there's this tendency in Christian circles to gravitate to whatever's the latest fad, whatever's the latest teaching, whoever's the, the, the preacher of the moment or the teaching of the moment, and to try and embrace that, the best-selling Christian book, whatever it may be, and bring that into our, our churches, into our ministry, into our personal lives. We're looking for that formula for winning. We're constantly trying to reach out and do better, get that thing that will finally bring us victory. Yet earlier in this very same letter, Paul urges the Christians in Ephesus not to be swayed by every wind of doctrine sweeping through the church. So if there is no kind of secret winning formula that we're to reach out to, what, what are we to do? Paul tells us that we are to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power. We're to stand up against the wiles of the devil, having done everything to stand firm. With these words, it should all start to become a little clearer what's going on over here. We're not talking about the church as some kind of invading force. We're talking about the church as an occupying force. In Christ, victory has been secured. What we now need to do is stand in that victory, fully equipped and supported by the Lord's strength. The church isn't supposed to mobilize in some sort of spiritual D-Day landing to liberate the world from evil. The church is already victorious and already occupying that enemy territory. We're not looking for a solution to make the church glorious and victorious. It is glorious and victorious. In this analogy, there is no onward Christian soldiers marching off to war. There is no when the saints go marching in. And the irony is that in seeking out that particular winning strategy, we may well be undermining and undoing our very own victory. The war is over. Christ has secured the victory, and the church is the occupying force living out that victory. I mean, just think about it. What more can we possibly hope to add to what Christ has already done for us? What doing, what activity, what energy, what fuss, what to do, can we possibly effect that will extend his victory? In fact, if you think there is anything you're going to add to the work that Christ has done, you are sorely mistaken. You're at risk of setting up an idol in your lives. They say that there are two things that are certain in life, death and taxes. I'm going to add a third, and I think far more certain item to that list. Christ's victory over death and sin through his death, resurrection, and ascension to the right hand of God. Say that again, Christ's victory over death and sin through his death, resurrection, and ascension to the right hand of God. However, just because that victory is certain and secure, it doesn't mean we get a free pass. We don't get to set out our spiritual deck chair and sun ourselves to the glow of our stained glass windows, carry Job playing softly in the background. Because what if you have a vindictive enemy 
who won't accept that he's been beaten, who wants to use every opportunity to undo what has been achieved, to cause you to retreat, or even to help you advance into an unhelpful position from where he can isolate you and take you down. We're told that our enemy, the devil, employs wiles. So we're to expect that he might be canny, crafty, shrewd, sneaky, devious, cunning, sly, wily. And that means he doesn't attack directly. He doesn't attack in obvious ways. Sometimes Eva's obvious, at least in retrospect, we can think of the Holocaust and extermination camps or the Rwandan genocide in the 1990s. And those happen from time to time, but that's not the enemy's preferred mode of operation. Not this wily enemy. If anything, his ideal result is evil that looks like good. Let me give you a silly example. Uh, Lydia's going to bring up a, a picture for us, hopefully. Uh, there's a nice scene. Uh, Dad playing with his son on the lawn. Happy days. Really, really good. I think all of us would endorse this uh, as something that is uh, good and uh, righteous and pure, wouldn't we? Except what if there's a wider picture to this story? What if not just 15 minutes ago, this man was rung by his employer, the fire brigade, to come to a burning building where people are trapped inside that need rescuing. And rather than mobilizing, he's decided to stay behind and play with his son. Good. Maybe. Evil. Maybe. Difficult to tell. It's maybe, it's a, maybe that's a, a convoluted analogy. You're probably thinking that scenario sounds a little bit far-fetched. What about ends justifying the means type of thinking? I come across this all the time in our society, in our workplaces, wherever it may be. Some years ago, I uh, came across uh, a particular scenario uh, where it, it, it came to light in, in a, a sort of a large and significant church, one of those churches where they have an altar call every Sunday. Some of you will have seen this, the preacher inviting people to come to the front to accept Jesus. There's, there's, there's a picture um, of you know, people standing to, to receive the Lord in prayer. Uh, great stuff, fantastic. More of that in our churches, more people coming to Jesus. Of course we want that. Except in this particular church, the way that they'd done this is they'd recognized that sometimes it's hard for people to stand up and make that decision. Sometimes it's hard to raise your hand. Sometimes it's hard to get out of your chair and go to the front. But what if somebody else did it first to encourage you? What if you weren't the first one to do it? And so they had some people on duty every Sunday whose job it was, when the altar call came, they would stand up and they would go to the front. Encouraging people to serve the Lord, of course. Or highly, highly manipulative. Oh, that's a tough one, isn't it? Because we, we want people to serve Jesus, but do we, do we want to manipulate? Oh, it's so tough. Far more subtle, far harder to spot. I suspect some of you are even thinking, oh, that doesn't sound too bad. Maybe, maybe we should try that here. <laughs> really hard to spot. How do we spot these wiles of the dead? Where can we see the evidence of these demonic powers at work? And when I think of demonic powers, I, this is maybe my uh, uh, Christian heritage, I'm always reminded of three markers, which I think were coined by uh, Derek Prince, the uh, Pentecostal Bible teacher. Um, citation may be needed over there. Domination, manipulation, intimidation, marks of demonic activity. And those, I mean, individually, these are traits that we're probably all guilty of from time to time. We use them to get our own way, don't we? 
We like to get our own way. We're probably more adept, though, at spotting them in other people, because other people always like to get their own way, too. Those people who go into sulk when they don't get their own way, people who withdraw from you so that you'll come running after them to come rescue them. Those people who you constantly feel like you're walking on eggshells around in case you kind of set them off. Some examples of manipulative behavior I'm sure we're all familiar with and probably engage with ourselves, if we're being honest with ourselves from time to time. Some of us perhaps more than others. So if you do those, does that mean you have a demon? I mean, you could have. It's possible. But for the most part, I think these tendencies are probably not a sign of direct demonic activity in your lives. They're probably more likely learned behaviors from being part of and engaging with a generally sinful and fallen world and the system that comes about as a result of that sin. So I don't, I don't think these are the types of behaviors and activities that Paul's sort of angling in on, taking aim at. That's not what the, the, the armor is primarily intended for. So could it be spiritual warfare? And if you've been in Pentecostal charismatic circles for a while, I'm assuming you've got a certain picture in your mind. You're picturing spiritual warfare right now. We, we, we've sort of got an idea of what... It was an approach that was prevalent in, the late, in sort of mid to late 1990s, I'm sure that some of you will have come across, where we would use our discernments and we'd use our prophetic giftings to sort of name local and regional demonic powers and, then, and principalities in order for us to come up with strategies and, and, and prayer approaches and intercession to kind of bring them down and, and, and you know, as part of a united Christian church. And uh, there may well be a time and a place for that. Perhaps it gets a little closer to what Paul is referring to here, but I don't see any evidence in this passage that would encourage us to go out looking for these rulers and principalities to take them on. You might even say that that is a foolhardy operation. See, because by their nature, they operate in this very much more slippery, subtler way. I think that the powers and principality Paul refers to here are primarily seen and manifested through the earthly institutions that surround us in our day-to-day lives. In fact, the larger they are, the more care they take to carefully nurture their public relations image, the more difficult it is to spot the hidden evil that gives them their impetus. We're talking about institutions that set the tone and narrative for the culture that surrounds us, exerting huge, unnoticed influence over individuals, families, all of society, and even the church. It's here that powers and principalities wield their wily influence behind the scenes, subtly turning society away from the redemptive creative power of the resurrected Christ. You're probably naming some of these already in your minds. Uh, The political party you voted against in the last election, some big tech firm perhaps that we've all heard of, some non-Western government perhaps that's regularly grabbing the headlines. The banks and financial services system, it's been very fashionable in recent years to hate on bankers. Notice how the responsibility for the global financial crisis back in 2008 was somehow deflected away from these giant, evil-influenced institutions and onto a small but difficult to pin down group of people named bankers. Just saying, perhaps they were every bit as much victims of the whole setup and circumstances as those that lost their homes and livelihoods. And of course you'll be thinking about the media, the Daily Mail, it's always the Daily Mail. But, 
<laughs> it's also the Observer. <laughs> the Guardian, the Financial Times, the Independent, even the BBC. These spiritual forces in the heavenly places are at work to influence the organized religion, the UN, even large charities, through advocacy groups, the civil service and our government. And dare I even say it, our beloved NHS. Did you take the symbol of God's promises to Noah and place it in your front window in homage to our most venerable institution? Did you stand outside with your fellow acolytes and clap at the appointed time to cheer in worship? Perhaps I'm being a little facetious. I too am massively grateful for the incredible work done by a determined army of committed health professionals over the last 18 months. But can you see how easy it is for things masquerading as good to capture our hearts and occupy our minds and steer us away from the place that Christ alone should occupy. So, should we go out and form Christians against the NHS? We'll chase down its leaders. We'll root out the hidden evil from within. We'll be lobbying for change, demanding that they behave in a more Christian way in all things, whatever that might be. Of course not, that would be ludicrous. Paul's whole point here is that these powers and spiritual forces are not just hidden, but out of our reach. He describes them as cosmic, as being in the heavenly places. Well, if that's the case, if we can't tackle them head on, perhaps the best thing to do is to avoid them. Quit your job, one of these institutions, find a godlier employer. Uh, perhaps we'll retreat into our homes, in our churches, in our cathedrals, our monasteries, back in the desert, and we'll prayerfully and humbly await the return of our Lord. We'll let him once and for all deal with this present darkness. Again, you can't run away from these things. They are there. They are too big. They are too powerful. They are too wily. They are sly. They are cunning. There is no tactical retreat. So if we mustn't go out and fight, if we mustn't go back, what option do we have? We stay. We stand. And we do all that we can to stand firm. We occupy the victory that Christ has given us. We continue to create and cultivate our identity as people under the lordship of Christ. Individually, but also as a community of believers in York and as the church as a whole, we create and cultivate our identity as people living under the lordship of Christ. That's what the armor of God really stands for. That's why we're encouraged to put it on. These are not like the six foolproof steps to the ultimate Christian victory experience. They're not some sort of formula to be dissected uh, like with re regular religiosity. I once heard a lady calling into a, a talk show on Christian radio saying that every morning she, she got out of bed and she physically did the actions of putting on the armor of God. I mean, maybe that was incredibly helpful, but that's not, I think, what Paul is getting at. I don't think Paul intends them to be taken in a literal sense. He, nor does he intend them to be all-encompassing. They stand for living out the Christian life as a community of believers where we are. That does mean grappling with truth and righteousness and faith and the word of God, ready to proclaim the gospel in full assurance of our salvation. Of course it does. So don't quit your job as a journalist or a banker or a nurse or a civil servant. Stay where you are and stand firm against the powers and the principalities by doing it, joining with your brothers and sisters in the church and living out the Christian experience. Living out the Christian life fully 
And when Paul encourages us to put the armor on, it means it's a choice. It's your decision to put on the armor or to discard it. It's your decision to live out the Christian life. You're either participating in it or you're not. But it's also a decision that we take as a church community not to allow each other to get blown around by winds, unhelpful winds of doctrine, not to get distracted by causes that may look good but ultimately cheapen the gospel. Should I stay or should I go John chapter 6, verses 56 to 69. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever eats me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like that which your ancestors ate and they died, but the one who eats this bread will live forever. He said these things while he was teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, His teaching is difficult. Who can accept it? But Jesus, being aware that his disciples were complaining about it, he said to them, Does this offend you? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit that gives life, the flesh is useless. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But among you, there are some who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the first who were the ones that did not believe and who was the one who would betray him. And he said, for this reason, I have told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted by the Father. Because of this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer went about with him. So Jesus asked the twelve, Do you also wish to go away? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom can we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Thanks, Hannah. That was John chapter 6. At the start of that chapter, uh, Jesus is feeding the 5,000 with bread, this astonishing miracle. Next thing, a large crowd has gathered. Things are going pretty well. He's preaching a sermon. He's talking about the Father giving true bread from heaven. And if you're Jewish, bread from heaven makes complete sense. Harks back to the wandering of your ancestors in uh, the wilderness where God provided manna for them from heaven on a daily basis. So it's a great sermon hook. There's this beautiful multi-layered kind of teaching going on. He's got the crowd engaged. They're asking for this bread. Jesus, can you give us some of this bread? It's great. But then it starts to get a little weird. And he starts calling himself the bread of life. And this causes some consternation and debate amongst the Jews. It's a little unsettling, frankly. And before you know it, he's telling them to eat his flesh. In fact, eating flesh gets reinforced in so many ways in this passage. Plus he starts talking about drinking his blood to the point that it's becoming absurd. And now for Jews, blood is the very, very symbol of life. 
In Leviticus chapter 17, we're told that the life of the flesh is in the blood. And so drinking blood may be just about the most offensive thing you can possibly encourage a Jewish person to do. And so all this excitement and anticipation of God at work through a prophet has turned first to confusion and then on to shock and disgust. You could say that Jesus has gone from prophetic to heretic and possibly in the end lunatic. The synagogue empties, the disciples that hang around Jesus normally drift off and we're left with just Jesus and the 12 disciples. And he asks them a question. Will you stay or will you also go? And so Peter speaks on behalf of the 12. A 12 that are confused, disappointed, somber, perplexed, embarrassed perhaps by Jesus' behavior. Perhaps even angry at him for letting them down so badly. Things were going so well. We were the in crowd. We're enjoying all the trappings of local fame and attention. And Jesus was winning everyone over to our cause. His novel teachings, his exciting miracles. And then he starts saying a bunch of bonkers stuff. And not just weird, but downright offensive. This morning, it was well woke to be a Jesus follower. This afternoon, it would be better to be cancelled. And when the disciples say this teaching is difficult, they don't just mean it's, it's hard to understand. It's hard to accept. Man, this Christian life can be tough, can't it? For every great quiet time, worship service, preach, encounter with the Holy Spirit, there is a world out there that does not understand and does not want to understand. That family member who's critical of your allegiance is already to point out every little hypocrisy in your life or the draw of a vibrant hedonistic experience available at every turn in our society and the temptation that comes with it. The intense effort required simply just to stand your ground whilst the fiery darts of the enemy push you further and further backwards. A whole world system designed and run by cosmic powers and principalities in direct opposition to us. And with that as the backdrop, Jesus asks, will you stay or will you go? But you know, Jesus offers more than just that question. He offers his own flesh and blood to bring you life. Of course, this isn't literal flesh and blood. If you read what he says to his disciples, what he goes on to say, he's talking about ascending into heaven and he's saying, how will you eat my flesh then? In fact, he declares flesh to be useless. So what he's saying must be figurative, despite those around him perhaps not being able to see that. In a short while, we're going to take communion together. and We won't literally be eating Christ's flesh and blood. It's not some sort of ritualistic religious cannibalism that's going on over here. But neither would I say the elements are purely symbolic. They represent a deep abiding in Christ, a participation in the eternal life that he offers, a staying, a standing. I came across a lovely turn of phrase while I was preparing for today. The bread in your mouth is Christ in your heart. I thought that was lovely. The bread in your mouth is Christ in your heart. In the same way that manna in the desert was temporary, the temporary bread we share together will go stale, assuming the kids don't hoover it up. But Christ is permanent. And with that permanency that Christ offers, the believer's life 
is intimately bound up in Christ. What Jesus is really saying to his disciples is that the way to salvation is in him. The way to finding eternal life is in finding Jesus. And not just by finding him, but actively putting on this Christian life to put on the armor of God and to stand. And when we stand in the armor of God, that's when we make a difference. Standing in that way, living out the Christian resurrection life gives a powerful witness to the lordship of Jesus Christ in our community. And that lordship speaks to and confronts the cosmic powers of this present darkness. That's what true, authentic Christian spiritual warfare looks like. It's not going out all guns blazing at the enemy. It's not going back to our holy place to wait. It's not seeking discernment over what demonic principalities exist over York and then coming up with clever strategies to topple them. It's not retreating from every worldly institution and purifying ourselves as anything to do with them as an isolated and holy community of believers. We don't go, we stay. We stand. We occupy the victory that we have in Christ, living out the resurrection life that we have in Christ. There will be trouble, even double trouble. But living out the Christian life will give us all the armor we need to stand firm. I'm going to encourage you in a minute as we finish off to uh, head through and uh, take on the communion meal, participate in the communion meal as a community of believers together, as participating in this Christian life. So please don't just eat some bread and drink some juice today. Choose to eat his flesh and drink his blood. Stay and participate in him. Choose to put on the Christian life. Jesus asks again, will you stay or will you go? Peter gives the only possible answer. Lord, to whom can we go? You have the words of eternal life. Let's go and share in his flesh and blood together this morning. Should I stay or should I go now? Should I stay?